Judith Collins this morning had a bit of a set too with uh, Indira Stewart, the presenter or co-host of TVNZ's Breakfast Show. Uh, she accused uh, Indira Stewart and indeed I think the Breakfast Program of going soft on the government and putting too much focus on her. And in turn, this thing she said about the media fact-checked throughout the afternoon on social media by some of the aggrieved gallery uh, reporters. Uh, so that was quite an interesting one. But first of all, there was something that happened earlier in the week, which I had a few queries about and was asked for an opinion on. So this was the Associate Minister of Health, Dr Aisha Verrill, uh, speaking about the Delta outbreak on the Mike Hosking Breakfast Show uh, on News Talk ZB. Um, and she hesitated a little bit on one of the questions Mike Hosking asked her like this. Are you confident you're getting this encircled? I think we're, um, I think we're uh, starting to see some positive signs. And, um, Jeez, that's know, not very reassuring, people... Aisha. There's a bit of a long <laughs> pause there, and, and I'm thinking you're a bit nervous. Are you nervous? Are we, are we getting this well, thing under uh, control or not? It's a, it's a serious condition, so I do worry about it, but I think there are some positive signs. Yeah, so that was just one of about nine questions Mike Hosking asked. It was uh, She answered all the others pretty much without any significant hesitation. I mean, there were some where they were actually interrupting each other, almost the, him interrupting her with the next question. Um, but in, later in the program, after that interview was all done and dusted, Mike Hosking made a huge deal of that pause in that particular question. Are you confident you're getting this encircled? I think we're, um, I think we're oh, uh, starting to see some positive signs. There's most definitely a pause, and I think there's probably also a gabble. Are you confident you're getting this encircled? I think we're, um, I think we're uh, starting to see some positive signs. I th- I, we don't have time to do it, but I think actually we do have time to do it. I think it's a two-trucker. I think it's a two-trucker plus gabble. Do you think? Are you confident you're getting this encircled? I think we're, um, I think we're uh, starting to see some positive signs. It is a pause of inner turmoil and a gabble of indecision from the Associate Health Minister, Aisha Ver. Okay, there you go, a bit of analysis there. <laughs> well, there was a pretty bad reaction to that from some journalists, pundits, and just various people on social media. Some felt that Hosking was being quite bullying there um, and pulling apart that interview like that. Pretty misogynistic as well. Some people felt that all that he was just trying to mock the expertise of, a, of someone who's, you know, she's a, who's a government minister and expects to be scrutinised, but also a clinical expert in this stuff, and that this was really just un- undermining the COVID response. Some people said they would complain to the BSA about it, though none of them said on what grounds they really thought that would happen. But a lot of people just felt that to do that, to have an interview with a minister, then later take it apart because of just a bit of a pause and a bit of hesitation was just um, plain rude and disrespectful. I guess the thing is, um, it's if Mike Hoskin is analysing the situation on our behalf there, then that analysis is not particularly deep. <laughs> it might be entertaining for some people, but it ain't deep. Well, some people thought this was really a kind of political criticism. Uh, he was having a go at a government whose response to COVID he does not rate and says so almost daily, several times on his program. But look, what it really was was a bit of showing off because 
This is something uh, that people who don't listen to a show wouldn't know, I guess, but that thing, the pause of inner turmoil, as he calls it, and the gabble, the turkey noise is there for someone who, in his mind, is waffling a bit. This is something he does fairly routinely. Here's another example, actually, of it. This is James Shaw, uh, co-leader with the Greens, getting the same treatment in 2019. Liz McPherson, is she up to the job, by the way? Yes, look, she, she has Could been we working extremely a clown car hard. In? Could it be a truck and a clown I car? I don't think we're going to get a clown car you in don't here, think but it's definitely a truck. It's definitely a uh, pause of inner turmoil. The minister doesn't have much confidence in the head of state. So, so uh, Mike Hosking has been doing this particular gag for more than five years. I wonder um, what truck it is. Oh, no Whether idea. It's a Kenworth or a Mac. I don't know. It goes by so fast. You yeah. triangulate the Doppler effect. You can yeah. work it out. But he's been doing this yeah, all the way back to 2016. This is the earliest example I could have it. He, and here's one where I don't even know who the interviewee is, but they think they had a three-truck pause. Um, but I think it's kind of interesting for what Mike Hosking's producer, Glenn Hart, says afterwards. Uh, so, yeah, if you are an interviewee on the Mike Hosking Breakfast, feel free to try and break that record. Although, uh, if, if, if you go any longer than about five seconds, alarms do go off. Uh, and, this, uh, and that flashing lights start to happen because they think we've gone off here. And we don't really want that. So, I think what's really off about that is this reinforces how they're kind of abusing the power they've got in the whole broadcasting process because they control the faders, they control the mics. People come on to ZB to be interviewed because they're representing something or someone or, you know, themselves maybe. Um, but not only do they have to front up, be interviewed sometimes fairly aggressively, um, what they say will often be responded to in the form of highly critical texts from listeners uh, that they'll pick and choose to play. ZB hosts often at the end of an interview will give their own little interpretation on the performance of the guest uh, that's just gone by. They particularly do it with politicians when they can't respond because they're off air. So to then take the interview, edit up, make, make fun of a pause, which was 1.5 seconds, give or take, the Aisha Verrill one, nothing out of the ordinary at all. Uh, I think you know, pretty unreasonable, particularly on a serious topic like the COVID response where ministers are doing all sorts of interviews and you know, having to talk a lot off the top of their heads to questions they can't quite anticipate. I mean, having worked with Mike way back in the days when he was on Morning Report, you know, Mike can talk 19 to the dozen. I mean, pausing was something that Mike didn't do very often. Mm. And still doesn't, as far as I know. But what he thinks he's done is really caught out. He, he's playing those, look, I caught out a minister there with a really difficult question, you know, look at me. I think that's what it is. But in that instance, I mean, I, I just don't think it was particularly revealing. And, you know, if they want to interview people in good faith and expect people to come on and be interviewed, uh, I don't think it's a particularly good tactic. But you kind of expect it from, I mean, Newstalk ZB seems to be running a bit of an editorial line at the moment, that uh, which is the government can't be trusted in on handling this COVID crisis. Yeah, and actually an interesting example was Mike Hosking's uh, co-fellow presenter and partner, Kate Hawksby, does the show before his. Uh, last week she um, did an opinion piece, uh, which of course all their hosts are encouraged to do, saying more scrutiny is needed for our bureaucrats. She said the bar's too low. If they were in the private sector, they'd get the boot. Uh, in the private sector, Ashley Bloomfield would be toast. Yes, she, she had said. a go at Ashley. Yes, and then that the last person that did, did that lost his job. Oh, well, a few people have had a go. That's true. Mr. Clark? <laughs> yes, David Clark. Yeah, but possibly not just for that. But Put her under a bus and he was gone by lunchtime. But the interesting thing about this is that there was a rebuttal yeah, from the Public Service Commissioner, you know, uh, so Dr. Bloomfield's boss, effectively Peter Hughes. ZB, the website, uh, published a 
rebuttal from him. He said, look, in the last 18 months, he's fronted up to intense scrutiny, far more. And how many private sector CEOs would have to do this? He said, Dr. Bloomfield's been dissected, analysed and critiqued as much as any All Blacks coach in our history, was his point of view. Now, later, I happened to hear it. This was discussed on ZB. They got very precious about this and got friendly pundits on to say, oh, this is crazy. A senior public service trying to shut down criticism of bureaucrats. But, I mean, really, it's it's it doesn't get us very far, I don't think. And I think Peter Hughes had a point that, uh, look, if it's scrutiny and accountability you want, um, you know, Dr. Bloomfield is more available, more interviewed, more more dissected, as uh, Peter Hughes put it, than just about any other um, bureaucrat you've ever seen. Now, I saw an article in the Sunday Star Times written from a different perspective on the same topic. Jahan Casanada was writing and, and saying, look, we're, we're, we need to, to cut a bit of slack for the bureaucrats and politicians. They're in a tough, unprecedented situation, uh, unrelenting pressure on a daily basis. Um, and which I thought was he has his points, but I guess I was thinking he was using Chris Hipkins as the example of the minister that's often under pressure. And I hear Chris Hipkins being interviewed by um, Lisa Rahm uh, on Checkpoint, and sometimes I find it quite hard listening. But then I think often Lisa gets something out of Minister Hipkins, which is new information to me. Oh, sure. And there's nothing wrong with being interviewed. I mean, they're, they're, they expect it. They were in opposition uh, for a long time, and they would have wanted to see uh, their government counterparts interviewed and uh, just as rigorously on checkpoint, and I guess they were. But it is interesting, you know, you pull up that piece by Jahan Kasanada. He's a journalist who's written an entire book about mental health and the media, hmm. um, which is quite interesting reading. But he did say, he picked up Chris Hipkins, said he'd seen him at the airport looking absolutely shattered and then trying to stay on top of this stuff and had sympathy for him. Uh, he says, um, the greatest accomplishments of some people working on our COVID response go unremarked. We won't know how many times border measures successfully halted the virus, how many times we uh, avoided um, a hospital being overrun, businesses being saved, people uh, spared the trauma of burying a loved one, give them some credit, uh, which is fair enough. But he also referenced um, Associate Health Minister Asia Verrill. He said, you know, these MPs were all woken at 2am with the news of um, a case at a hospital recently. Um, can you imagine, says Jihan, you know, this sort of pressure, Facebook's keyboard warriors and armchair epidemiologists wouldn't last a day in these roles. And I kind of had that in mind when I think, you know, she makes a pause for a second and a half answering a Mike Hoskin question. And, and he gets, puts the truck sound effect with the on. the truck's noise in the yeah. turkey. In the turkey. Yeah, the turkey in the, in the, turkey, the turkey truck. Yeah. Um, can I ask, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, however, um, Colin, but the number of people working on comms for the government in the Beehive various ministries and the Prime Minister's office. Roughly, how would that compare with the number of people who are employed by media organisations such as our own, such as News Talk ZB, such as Television 1 and 3, uh, or whatever it's called now, News Hub, um, to scrutinise the government? It's interesting. So uh, the number of journalists is thought to have fallen by about half uh, between 2006 and 2018. Those are census years. The definition of journalist changed slightly in those two censuses. Sensei? Um, but I'll go for sensei. <laughs> sensei. It's easier to say. There are about 4,300 reporters, editors, and sub-editors, sub 2006 by 2018, fallen to 2,000. 
um, print, radio, TV journalists or other writers. So that's rule of thumb. That's about comparable, I would say. So about 2,000, give or take, working journalists around the country, uh, not necessarily in full-time roles. Um, but in terms of the comms staff, uh, for the public sector. That's interesting. I mean, most recent figures I found actually came from news stories reporting national party figures. But Phil Pennington at RNZ has also done this, going through the annual reports of all these organisations. And in the latest news stories I found about this, they have a figure here that the number of full-time comm staff increased from 2017, when Labour came into government, from 564 then, now 845. This, um, is, this is for the government... That's alone. Right, for the government alone. But the thing to bear in mind here is when this argument always comes up, they say, look, people employed in communications, that's not necessarily public relations, right? Also known as spin. So the people who might be feeding journalists or trying to get positive lines out across them, that might not be the case. Because some people working in communications, like the one they always reference is Waka Kotahi, formerly NZTA, their comm staff have absolutely mushroomed, but they have to consult on a whole lot of roading programs around the country, do consultation, nothing really to do with managing journalists. So they would say there's a whole area of communications which isn't to do with media management. However, you know, you can pretty clearly see the mega trend over the years, number of journalists diving, number of comm staffs and the budget to hire them going up. And I can therefore understand some interviewers getting a bit sharp with ministers just to get trying to get the facts. Yep, and there was because there was, maybe the minister side of things has been spun by our own taxpayer funds. I mean, it's funded by us. It, it sure is, all of it, and a lot of our journalism is too. Though we should bear in mind. Yeah, yeah. But thank in, you very much, taxpayer. In the same, well, we're always grateful. But in the same Sunday Star Times that Jan Casanada made that. Uh, that case for cutting some slack to the people running our COVID response. Andrea Vance, senior journalist in the same paper, um, said, look, if the government is making the right decisions on COVID-19, it will withstand scrutiny. She said there's an us and them mentality going on now, uh, the team of five million criticising anyone who dares criticise the government's approach. Government supporters are aggressively insisting critics should shut up and trust the experts and people like journalists who look appear as if they're challenging that, uh, are copping flack, she says. But I, I don't know. I think it's a bit of a straw man argument. And a similar one in the spin-off, Laura Walters, their journalist, wrote a piece in defense of those who hold the government to account. I think the same is true. If their scrutiny, their criticism, their reporting of the COVID response is good and sound, it will withstand the kind of knee-jerk response of people who say, you're giving a hard time to people just trying to do their best. So I I think that argument cuts both ways. I have a theory that there's a downward spiral going on. This is just my theory. This is the theory of Brian Crump. Brian Crump's Um, downward spiral? Which is, okay, there's less funds for journalism. There's less journalism, which is deep. There's reaction and opinion is cheaper. So you get more of that. And then you get the government responding to that. How are we going to spin this so we don't get that bad reaction story? Well, there's part of that. But when you say the funds for journalism is falling, actually, it's increasing. The government investment in this, the Public Interest Journalism Fund, the COVID bailouts, um, New Zealand On Air's budget, for example, not all of which goes to journalism, a lot of it goes to other kind of programming. It's actually going up. Yeah, the industry's still in some level of trouble, of course, and there is that imbalance you mentioned between communications and spin. But, you know, this is also when journalists like Andrea Vance and Laura Walters hit back and say, look, we're copping flack for doing a job of holding people to account and exposing uh, the government to scrutiny on the way they're running things, which is completely legit. They don't acknowledge that 
the media is also giving a platform to some of this opinion. There is more opinion than ever. And actually an interesting piece in the Dominion Post in the weekend by um, veteran writer, science writer Jenny Nichols, who said, you know, there's never been more of this. Um, Media in New Zealand have done a fine job fighting misinformation, she said, but if the public has a jaundiced view of much news content, so do frustrated veterans of the trade because of this uh, avalanche of what she calls uh, reckons rather than journalism. And she quotes Donna yeah, Chisholm. Yeah, the opinion stuff. Yeah, yeah uh, Donna Chisholm, uh, veteran uh, journalist, a very experienced investigative uh, journalist indeed, says, I hate that our media landscape's now dominated by cheap and unsubstantiated reckons. I'm proud of the fact I've never written an opinion piece in 46 years. Can I ask you about <laughs> a fictional uh, reporter now who's died? Okay, the guy that played the fictional reporter has died. I'm talking the fictional one. And I, he, this actor is so much this person in, my, in terms of my memory, Lou Grant. Lou Grant was the character, Ed Asner was the actor, and Ed Asner died the other day, right? Yes, at the age of 91. A really significant figure in media history because he was quite um, a strong unionist, member of the Screen Actors Guild. He challenged a former uh, president of that guild who became the president of the United oh, States. Oh, Ronald, Ronald Reagan. Reagan, yeah, he yeah. and Ed did not get on later on, yeah. And nor with Charlton Heston, who was also um, in charge of uh, the, the Screen Actors Guild. But yes, Lou Grant was the graph editor of, um, I think, a television news station. Mary Tyler Moore, Mary Show. Tyler Moore Show. Then got a spin-off of his own thing. That was a half-hour comedy, sitcom, basically. But that was spun off into an hour-long program, Lou Grant. We played the, uh, the editor of a newspaper. Do we have time to, to listen to the music from that? Because it's quite it's Of quite course we do. So as it cranks up, why like doesn't that, Mike Hoskin use that oh, for his gap filler? No, not not bombastic the chainsaw. enough. <laughs> but then, and then the sax. Uh, yeah, and then the but the end of it. Keep listening because I think it doubles back. Have a listen. This is the end of the theme as they go into an episode of Lou Grant. I think we've just found the theme for Midnight Media Watch, Con, <laughs> if you ever want to do that show. But why do you think we're hearing the chirping birds and the chainsaw? Oh, you, now you're getting deep for me. Well, then, because the, the whole sequence is it begins with a chirping bird in a tree that is then cut down by the chainsaw ah. and then turned into logs, go to the print plant, turned into newsprint. The whole thing, you see the paper rolling off the, you know, off the production line in the, in the print plant. And then it ends with someone receiving their L.A. Tribune, the fictitious paper that Dick Grant worked at, and then tearing out a page and putting it into the canary cage for the canary to crap on. And that's the end of the, uh, of the sequence.